Chapter 16 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 A Desert Ride, Agua Caliente to San Felipe City. Like every genuine prospector I ever met, Wilson had three articles of faith without observance of which no day could hopefully begin. One was flapjacks, another bacon, the third coffee. The second of them I find it wise to abjure when there is a thirsty day's work ahead. Thus, though we were up at half-past four, the sun was already hot when we started from Agua Caliente. Our horses carried, besides our other baggage, all the water that we had vessels to hold, to it three canvas water bags and four canteens, giving eleven gallons altogether. At one place on our route, it was possible we might get a little water by digging, and in hope of it, we had borrowed a shovel from our Vallecitos acquaintance. Failing this, we should not find any till next day, and the horses must have water once, at least before then. The best-known entrance to Split Mountain Canyon is from Carrizo Springs, some miles to the east of Agua Caliente but Wilson believed he could find a direct route through the Badlands that would save us that detour. We struck directly northeast, over a rising plain dotted with dwarfed agaves and ocotillos. Ahead was a high divide formed by the meeting of the flanks of Vallecitos and Fish Creek Mountains. It is between these two mountains that Split Mountain Canyon runs, a mere rift in width but deep and clear-cut. To the south, there gradually opened a view of Coyote Mountain, not the peak of that name that I had passed on leaving Borrego Springs, a handsomely shaped block of dull reddish-brown standing a few miles to the north of the Mexican border. Of my companion's two horses, one was generally used as a pack-horse, the other for riding. Now, however, loaded as all the animals were with bags and canteens of water, we were both afoot. On a gravelly bench we found galleta grass growing in tussocks, any one of which would have made a meal for a truck horse. It was hard to pass it by, but fortunately Wilson had brought along half a sack of barley from which I would draw rations for Cahuilla. It was here that I first identified an insect of bad reputation, the campamoche. It belongs to the same family as that ferocious hypocrite, the praying mantis, and is a gray, stick-like creature not easily seen amid the dry stems of the galleta where it is apt to be found. Taken into the stomach of horses or cattle, its effect is said to be that of a corrosive poison, sometimes strong enough to cause death. I am a little doubtful regarding this fatal quality of the campomoche, in view of the tendency to exaggeration in such matters, but the story has come to me from several sources. Two hours brought us to the edge of the Badlands in the form of a deep, abrupt barranca, the first of dozens through which we must thread our way. In we dived, and indeed the plunge into one of these mazes is much like diving into unknown water. When, where, or whether one will get out is somewhat a matter of chance. In and out, up and down we went for hours, scrambling up and skittering down. Now and then we left the horses and climbed out to get our bearings afresh. It was not reassuring to see that Wilson was often at fault, 
though it was natural since he was gauging landmarks from an unfamiliar side we reached at length the rim from which we looked out over a still more intricate piece of country with a sweep of the hand my companion remarked there's the worst stretch of country i know and i know most all the bad layouts from idaho down more men have got lost in that mess of stuff than any other place i ever saw and most of em are there yet miners hell i call it easy to get in and the devil to get out well i know where we are anyway i wasn't sure before but now there'll be monuments if we can find em so i reckon we'll get through it was a remarkable sight imagine a cauldron of molten rock miles wide thrown by earthquake shock into the complexity of a choppy sea and then struck immovable looking down on it one would say that not a stick or leaf of herbage was there still less any animal life in that sterility of vermilion ochre and gray life there is of both kinds but so scant that it is merely the scientific minimum almost more theory than fact our eyes needed to be on the alert every moment to get the benefit of the monuments they were sometimes a hundred yards sometimes half a mile apart and such casual affairs that without a sort of instinct one would not know them however with one or two mistakes we worked our way through and found ourselves in the main canyon the name of split mountain fairly describes its appearance the spectacular part of the defile begins some distance from the mouth but already high walls shut us in and made a narrow corridor with a level floor of white sand in which a few bits of brush huddled close to the cliffs for shelter from the blasting sun before getting far into the canyon we came to the place that gave our only chance of water on a boulder was dimly written in english and spanish water one hundred feet west dig with an arrow marking the direction pacing off the distance we looked for a likely spot then went to work the first hole giving no encouragement we tried another then a third but after half an hour of thirsty work we concluded that it was hopeless and ceased earlier in the year we might have had success now the water level had sunk out of reach traces of others attempts could be seen and i hope that none of them stood for the last struggle of some fellow mortal to us the failure meant pushing ahead at once instead of exploring a certain part of fish creek mountain that wilson wished to visit with an eye to mineral we found a smoke tree and made the most of its hypothetical shade while we ate lunch and fed and rested the horses before going on we gave them each half a bucket of water which they drank eagerly and asked for more but it was imperative to ration the whole party more severely than we had intended a good deal had escaped from the water bags by leakage though they had been soaked all the previous day in the spring footnote these bags much in vogue in our desert regions would be improved by providing a heavy reinforcement preferably of leather to cover the bottom and extend a few inches up the sides without this the pressure of water in a large bag forces it through the canvas in footnote we now entered the most striking part of the gorge which reminded me of painted canyon near mecca which i described in an earlier chapter the cliffs here though they have not the variety of color of those in painted canyon are vertical like them and equally high the width of the floor is about the same 
there is always a feeling of gloom in these places let the sun pour his blinding rays as he will a chill is on the mind the walls seem to draw closer about the traveller the eye itself seems to feel a sense of dread and shrinks from realizing the threatening height the gorge continued for several miles now and then some side cleft opened choked with granite here old there freshly broken the skyline was torn into wild forms as if by blows of a titan's hammer lean ocotillo or starving creosote stared grimly from this rim or shrank back into niches of the unfriendly wall the only bird i saw was a raven whose slow wing-beat struck heavily on the well-like air and whose croak as he flew from point to point before us seemed to warn us back and promised dismal consequences if we followed sunset found us nearing the northern outlet of the canyon in that deep silent place the light as it faded away up the vast wall seemed to be withdrawing for the last time clinging and lingering on the upper heights with a dull glow of dying lava close behind crept like tragedy the ashy shadow now only the topmost edge held the rays as if clutching a last hope for a moment they brightened and the spectral shapes looking down moved as if in relief but on the instant a dark hand passed over and chilled all color to stony gray i pushed on to overtake wilson before he passed out of the canyon where i might be unable to follow his tracks in the darkness i came up with him just as we emerged upon the sloping bajada which is the feature of almost every desert canyon mouth brush grew more thickly and had a friendly look after the barrenness of the gorge far across the valley to the north i recognized santa rosa mountain unmistakable though showing a face new to me a dark ridge to the east i knew must be superstition mountain now not many miles away we picked our way round the shoulder of fish creek mountain an imposing mass that even in half darkness showed a metallic look very noticeable by daylight I expect to hear some day of fortunes coming out of that mountain, which has hardly been touched by prospectors on account of the difficulty of taking in sufficient water for a stay long enough for effective work. Wilson was making for a dry camp of his, on the way to which we should pass an old mining shaft in which a little liquid was sometimes to be found. This, though quite impossible for human beings, Wilson had known his animals to drink when hard-pushed. It was long after dark when we reached the hole. We hauled up a bucket of the stuff, the horses crowding round for first chance. The stench was atrocious, and it was all I could do to avoid being violently sick. One after another, the animals did their best to drink, putting their noses to it thirstily time after time, but it was too foul and they would not take it. We drew bucket after bucket in hope of getting something a degree less disgusting. At last, one of Wilson's horses reluctantly drank a little, rolling back her lips after each mouthful to get rid of the filthy taste and odor. Her mate, and my Kawea, who was unusually scrupulous, could not bring themselves to touch it, though their eagerness was pitiful. We led the poor beast to camp, which was in a clump of mesquites near the foot of the mountain. With barley and mesquite beans, they were well fed, at any rate. Then we scratched up a meal by the light of a candle in, threw our blankets on the sand and ourselves on them, 
and smoked for an hour while we radiated the day's accumulation of heat into the scarcely cooler air of the night. We had made a fifteen hours march with one stop of less than an hour at midday. At first daylight we took the horses again to the hole, thinking they would by now be forced to drink. Well, since animals both drank a little, though with every token of repugnance, but Kawea would have none of it, though he snuffed eagerly at each bucketful I brought him. Probably the water, besides being alkaline and stagnant, was putrid with dead animals, birds, snakes, possibly a coyote or two. My gorge rises now when I think of the place. Breakfast almost ended our own water, and the first necessity for all concerned was to get to a new supply. Six miles to the north, a saddler had sunk a well and obtained a small flow, sufficient for household needs, though not for irrigation. We made for this place, my poor Kawea in distress and panting hard as I led him. The relations between man and horse, who are much together, especially when for long spells they too are alone, take on a touch of sentiment on the man's side, and I do not doubt on the other's also, that to some might seem overdone. The loyalty of the dumb beast, patiently doing his best, accepting his master's will without thought of dispute, and taking for granted that his service will be repaid by care for the needs which he is prevented from supplying for himself. The pathos of this becomes better recognized in the daily sharing of chances. And whenever, as here, my trusty companion has had to suffer, I have had pangs, I don't mind saying, that came near bringing tears. When it comes to magnanimity, few of us can equal the average horse or hound. Under a greasewood bush I noticed an old shoe. It had belonged, Wilson said, to a man who, the year before, had gone crazy for want of water, and had a year thrown away clothes, shoes, blankets, everything, the usual line of action, and, raving and naked, had wandered across the desert, until by luck he came to one of the canals of the Imperial Valley Irrigation System, some twenty miles away. There he was found, lying in the water, out of his senses and famishing for food, but too weak to travel farther. In this case, rescue came just in time, and the man eventually recovered. The fact that I was again below sea level was registered both in the shells that sprinkled the powdery plain and in the water line at the foot of the mountain. To the south, Signal Mountain, an isolated peak beyond the Mexican line, showed near at hand. Ahead was Santa Rosa, and a few miles to the east the haze of the plain faded to faint blue where Salton lay anemic under the fierce evaporation. Behind us rose the spur of the peninsular range through which we had yesterday threaded our way. At length appeared a derrick and a dot or two beside it. This was our destination. The horses quickened their pace, and as we approached I was relieved to hear a hail for I had been worrying over the possibility that the place might be deserted and the pump out of order. In that case, we should have been in a serious fix, with less than half a gallon of water left and the horses badly used up. Two young fellows, a Norwegian and an Irishman, as I later found, who were watching our coming, first handed us the water bag as a natural preliminary, then made us welcome to the San Felipe city. We hastened to water our anxious beasts, then rejoined the populace, and Felipe the dog, 
at the pump-house. I had heard of this thriving place before, and was pleased to find myself within its boundaries. Over the door of a shed which adjoined the house was a signboard painted, San Felipe, 71 feet below sea level. Watch it grow. Population 1920, 1,000. It was a good example of Western optimism. Generous, yet modest withal, for what California city, with two citizens already secured, does not set a higher mark than a single thousand for the end of the decade. Here, as in other places I have described, the hope on the settler's horizon is that some person of wealth, providentially going daft, may be inspired to waste his substance in the reckless sinking of wells which shall tap the water-bearing strata that, as the settler is convinced, underlie his precious claim. Footnote. There are uses to which public money is put that seem less statesmanlike than employing it in experimental borings in these localities, provided the soil is such as to make agriculture profitable if water is found. Good land would be brought sooner into use, while settlers would be saved the spending of years upon tracts intrinsically worthless. In footnote. Our San Felipe friends, though, had an eye also to mineral possibilities. The talk centered on mines and prospects, claims and jumpings, water holes and deaths for lack of them, and thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of dollars were freely tossed about. Easy Street is the only thoroughfare in the city of the prospector's dreams. The day was hot, though not specially so. 115 degrees was the highest point touched by the municipal thermometer. The look of our hosts made a commentary on the general temperature. Both were naturally fair-complexioned, but had taken a pleasant tint of café au lait wherever the skin showed, and their dress of tattered duck trousers with armless and barely coherent shirt did not leave much in doubt. The Irishman mentioned that, a few days before, the iron head of a drum of water he was hauling was blown off by the steam generated within. He reported also that in his capacity of cook, he often found eggs which had lain outdoors, partly cooked by the sun, so that they did not fall from the shell when broken for the frying pan. Readers who have had experience of the summer climate of these regions will not be unduly critical of these stories. One of Wellson's horses, a raw-boned animal with a kind of pile-driver action due to a case of spring halt, having become tender-footed, we gave her a day's rest at the ranch while we paid a visit to Superstition Mountain. This low range hardly deserves the name of mountain, for it does not rise to a thousand feet and is merely a long ridge, mainly interesting for its deadly reputation among both Indians and whites. From this side it had a peculiar piebald look, unlike any other range I have seen. We rode southeasterly toward the low clay ridge beyond which lay the Salton Sea. The ground was a dead level of silt that rose in puffs and lingered in the nostrils like acrid smoke. Shells glittered everywhere, almost the only thing for the eye to notice, for the vegetation was reduced to an occasional hummock of mesquite, of which only the topmost twig showed above the mound of soil that struggled to engulf them. I tried to imagine some addition or subtraction by which the landscape might be rendered more depressing, but had to admit that the maximum was reached. It was wholly 
conscientiously bad. Sand and gravel succeeded to silt as we approached the ridge. Pebbles of unusual colors were strewn about, mingled with odd-looking bits of black-baked clay, some like fragments of tile, some in large balls or grotesque shapes such as children make from a lump of plaster. Large flakes of mica glittered here and there, objects of awe to the simple Indian mind, which I notice takes brightness in any form to be significant, good or bad medicine. I looked for animal life, but saw none except rarely the track of a lizard. Even flies were absent. As a matter of fact, they almost disappear from the desert during the hottest weeks of the summer. The black clay continued for miles, usually as a capping to layers of red and yellow. Turning southward, we made direct for the mountain, picking our way through gullies of sand and boulders bleached almost snow-white by the terrific sun. The glare from the ground was even more intolerable than the direct blast, and the heat was intensified by the scarifying dryness. The effect on the eyes was acutely painful. Indeed, it is surprising that such a sensitive organ can endure these conditions without lasting damage. Aqueous humors were never meant for this sort of thing. As we neared the mountain, I found that certain white patches that had puzzled me were splashes of sand that had been swept far up the slopes as waves run up the face of a cliff. Along the base appeared again the curious shapes of clay, many of them as perfect as if turned in a lathe or cast in a mold. By a narrow pass we turned into the heart of the mountain. Precipitous walls, as in Split Mountain Canyon but not so high, shut us into a winding defile where we could not ride abreast. It was midday, and the place was like a furnace, the temperature not less, I think, than 150 degrees in the sun. The formation looked like red clay, but the loose rocks that strewed the canyon were of varied kinds and colors, prevailingly igneous, and many with metallic luster. I saw that my companion occasionally added a bit of rock to the museum he carried in his hip pocket. It is hard to keep one's mind off the subject of mines and metals in this locality, where something striking in the way of minerals appears at every turn, and every lonely canyon looks just the place to be hiding ledges of the right stuff. We rode along, looking for shade, but it was a mile or two before we found it under the overhang of a boulder, and then our feet projected annoyingly. Into this haven we crept, after feeding the horses, and lay for an hour gathering energy for the eating of lunch. We had brought the materials for a billy of tea and agreed that it was what we needed, but there the matter hung. Finally we tossed up, and I, who had suggested this solution in a spirit of fairness, found myself condemned to walk out into the broiling sun and endure the added warmth of a fire. When a strip of shade came under the cliff, we moved over, horses and men, and hugged the rock while we waited for the temperature to pass the crisis. Even in the shade, the breeze was scorching, and the sand so hot as to be uncomfortable to sit upon. The horses stood with half-shut eyes and panted as if broken-winded. To pass the time agreeably, Wilson told stories of various mikes and bills who had preceded us into these canyons, and most of whom, apparently, had concluded to remain. I in turn related the following incident, which had been told to me at Mecca by Johnny Thomas, 
one of a number of prospectors who keep a sort of rookery among the mesquites at the rear of the railway station. Summer of 1907, said Johnny, taking his favorite pose, squatting on his haunches in the shade of a screw beam, I was camped over at Cottonwood. I was working on my Blue Dick claim then. Old Blue, that was my pack burrow, was a renegade. Old man Schneider bought him first from the Indians at Martinez, and he couldn't ever keep him. Most everybody in the valley owned him one time or another before I had him. Dick, why, he was my riding burrow. Blue Dick, don't you see? Well, one morning I wanted to go over and look at my black owl claim. It was only four miles away, so I walked, and I left Blue and Dick and my other burrow, a Jenny, grazing in a little side canyon that was wired across. When I got back, they were gone. That old devil had got away and took the others with him. It was too late to go after them that day, but next morning I took my small canteen and started to track them. I didn't reckon they'd gone very far, but I used up my water before I'd much more than got on their trail, so I came back again to the springs. As it happened, Alec Cameron and Don Ferguson had just come in to Cottonwood that day. They'd been over to Placer Canyon in the Palins, and there wasn't any water in the canyon, and they came back. I borrowed one of their jacks and started out again next morning with a gallon of water and three or four biscuit. Though Burroughs had hit an old dim Indian trail, it goes over to Pinion. It was a trail I didn't know about, but that old blue devil savvied every trail and water hole from Chuck Warren's to the river, dern him. I traveled all day, but the tracks went right on. When night came, I had about a cup full of water left. It was only about three or four miles from Pinion, if I'd known, but I didn't know the country then, and the only water I knew about was behind. So I turned back. I left the jack tied in the brush, because I had to find my back tracks, and I couldn't do that unless I walked and sort of felt my way. It wasn't what you'd call a trail, more like a jackrabbit run. I couldn't eat because I was too dry to swallow without drinking, and I didn't dare to drink. It was August, long days, and hotter in blazes. I durstn't use up that mite of water, so I'd take a mouthful and hold it, and then spit it back in the canteen. It was the dark of the moon, but I had to travel, and I kept moving all night. I used up all my matches looking for my tracks. When it got daylight, my water was all used up. I was in bad shape, faint, and awful thirsty, and I hadn't made more than half the way back to the springs. When it got hot, I would travel, say, two hundred yards and then lie down in the shade of a rock or a bit of brush. Gosh, I don't know how I kept going, except I knew I had to keep on or I'd die right there. When night came again, I took off my clothes, all except shoes, and carried them. It was a hot night, but the wind felt good on my skin. I don't know how I stayed on the trail. Luck, I guess. And the only way I kept going was because I had to get to Cottonwood that night. I knew I'd never lived through another day like i just put in. It was three in the morning when I got to Cottonwood. I went right into the water trough and put my head in. I had sense enough left not to drink any at first. The boys were there. They gave me some weak whiskey and then some coffee and other grub. I slept all that day, and next morning I walked the 25 miles into Mecca. Frank Coffee came back with me to Cottonwood with two of his burrows, and then I went back with three gallons of water and a loaf of bread. The jack was tied where I left him. He was pretty sick-looking and lying down. 
I went on and found my burrows over at Pinion and brought them all back to the springs. That was about the closest call I've had. I didn't ought to have started with that little canteen, but gosh, us fellows are all fools, else we wouldn't stay with it. Well, after that, I was through with Old Blue. I sold him to a rancher for eight dollars. Don't happen to have the makings, do you? Gracias. We had agreed to start back at three o'clock, but when the hour came, our courage was wanting. However, Wilson handsomely offered to boil another billy, and when it had been dispatched, we braced up and moved off. On emerging from the canyon, we took a direct line for home. It led us first over a plain of clay thinly covered with sand and pebbles, next into a region of dunes discouraging to the tired horses, and then to the edge of a depression that was curiously broken up with fissures, a sort of miniature badland formation. From the tracks of wildcats and coyotes that threaded the narrow gullies, it would appear that this is a kind of preserve of theirs, though what they live on, unless on one another, is a mystery. Tracks of sidewinders were here, too, in great profusion. Quite a nice, populous neighborhood. I was surprised to find fragments of pottery strewn about this hopeless region. In the canyon I saw none, but so far as I can learn, there has never been any water discovered there, not even the natural tanks that almost all desert ranges afford. It is hard to conjecture why Indians should ever have chosen to live in this locality, the most forbidding on the whole desert. One, moreover, that superstition prompts them to avoid. Perhaps the attraction was the fish they may have found here when this was the margin of the ancient sea. Footnote. Lee Arenas tells me of a tradition of his people, the Cahuyas, that at one time all the fighting men of the tribe, numbering perhaps 500, went on the warpath against one of the Colorado River tribes, probably the Yumas. His story goes that the whole party, with the exception of a score or so, perished somewhere in these wastes. With such tales in mind, these potsherds scattered about the desert, what tragedies may they not imply? This is the only instance, so far as I know, of large bodies of Indians attempting the crossing. In footnote. The sun did not miss the good shot we offered as we rode westward for hours. But at last he fired his final round for the day and sank behind friendly San Ysidro. I hung my hat on the saddle horn, threw open my shirt, and basked in relative coolness. By nightfall we were back at our quarters. Our friends, stripped to the waist, were waiting supper for us. In the smoky lamplight the scene reminded me of a ship's forecastle. Afterwards it was the extreme of luxury to lie on a blanket and send up incense to the starry bands marching overhead, while the eternal talk went on of leads and loads, veins and stringers, placers and pockets, till sleep brought silence. End of chapter 16